Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before I continue, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. In the early history of Canada, the rivers were our highways. Voyageurs, ships, and settlers moved along our rivers to get where they needed to go. The importance of rivers can be seen in the fact that when the Hudson's Bay Company received its royal charter in 1670, it was given all the land that drained into the Hudson's Bay. Without the rivers, the fur trade would simply not exist. The problem was that rivers came with dangers, and few things were more dangerous than the rapids. One place where this was especially true was the Lachine Rapids. These rapids along the St. Lawrence River between the island of Montreal and the south shore were first seen by a European when Jacques Cartier arrived in 1535, sailing up the river in the belief that he had found the Northwest Passage. In 1611, Samuel de Champlain would name the rapids Sault St. Louis after a teenaged crewman named Louis who drowned there. The name would be used for two centuries until it became the Lachine Rapids, after the community of Lachine that was located nearby. That community's name, whose name would lend itself to the future canal, came from the French term for China, Lachine, because of the original belief that the river was the Northwest Passage to China. As the area became settled by the French, on land granted by the King of France, attempts were made to build a canal to bypass the rapids as early as 1689, when the French colonial government and others began the effort. Parts of the canal were dug, but it did not get beyond that initial stage. Unfortunately, an attack on Lachine by the Iroquois during the Beaver Wars, something I covered in an earlier episode, put an end to the project. Another attempt would be made in 1700, but this would fail due to a lack of funds. The plan for this attempt was to have the canal be 12 feet wide, with the canal being 18 inches in depth at its lowest point. Work was started, but was never completed but if it had been finished, it would have been used primarily by canoes. In 1780, another attempt was made with short cuttings available for canoes, but it did not go beyond this. These first attempts, and the rest of attempts over the course of the 130 years, would end in failure. In 1804, a canal three feet deep in depth at the shoreline of the rapids was built, allowing for very small boats to slightly bypass the rapids. In 1805, 4,000 pounds, 
or £869,000 today, was put forward by the government to improve the Lachine Rapids by removing them as an obstacle to navigation. This attempt would prove futile as well. It would not be until a Scottish immigrant named John Redpath, who was part of a consortium that included John Richardson as chairman and Thomas McKay, who was a contractor with Redpath, that a functional canal would be built. Funding would come from a variety of sources, including the recently formed Bank of Montreal for the project, and the consortium would begin working on the canal. I want to look at these men before we move forward. Now, John Redpath was born in 1796 in Scotland, the son of a farm worker and his second wife. In 1816, he would arrive in Quebec City with nearly no money, and he walked barefoot to Montreal. There, he used the experience he had as a stonemason to get work, and he would help install the first oil street lamps in the city. Within a few years, he was running his own construction business, and that would lead him to helping to build the canal. With the success of the canal project, Redpath would have more work, and he would help to build the Notre Dame Basilica and the first buildings of the McGill University. In 1833, he was asked to sit on the board of directors of the Bank of Montreal, a position he would hold for the next 36 years. From 1840 to 1843, he was on Montreal City Council, and he would cede land that would become Drummond Street, which was named for his second wife, Jane Drummond. He would found Redpath Sugar in 1854, which would become a major employer in Montreal, and operates to this day. Within a few years of its creation, that sugar refinery was exporting 7,000 tons of raw sugar, and he would pass away at the age of 72 or 73 in 1869. John Richardson was born in England, and after working for his uncle's fur trading firm, he would find his way to North America, and eventually Montreal. In Montreal, he would help to form the XY Company, that would become part of the Northwest Company, and he would co-found the Bank of Montreal. He would run for political office in 1792 and win, and would serve, off and on, until 1808. He would serve as the president of the Natural History Society of Montreal, and he was the first president of the Montreal General Hospital. He would pass away in 1831 at the age of 76 or 77. Before moving on to the next person, I do want to note that John Richardson had spent years trying to get a canal built at the Lachine Rapids. In the Provincial Parliament of 1795, a bill was actually introduced by Richardson to construct a canal and turnpike at Lachine. Now, Thomas McKay was born on September 1st, 1792 in Scotland, and he would emigrate to Canada in 1817 and settle in Montreal. Soon after, he partnered with John Redpath to do the masonry work on the Lachine Canal. Following the canal, he would also help to build the Union Bridge and the Rideau Canal in Bytown, which would become Ottawa eventually. In 1837, still living in Ottawa, he would become quite wealthy and buy 1,100 acres of land where he would build a mansion for himself in 1838. This would become Rideau Hall, and is now the official home of the Governor-General. He would serve on City Council and be elected to the Legislative Assembly of Upper Canada, serving from 1834 to 1841. From 1841 to 1855, the year of his death, he was on the Legislative Council of the United Province of Canada. So, back to the canal, after a brief foray into the men who helped build it. Prior to the successful building of the canal, Passengers and freight had to portage about 15 kilometers from the port of Montreal to Lachine so they could resume the trip by boat. 
Planning for the canal and the raising of funds began in 1815, when Sir George Provost, the governor of Lower Canada, passed an act for work to begin, allocating $25,000 for the construction, or $2.2 million today. The planning would continue until 1819 when a joint stock company was formed with $600,000, amounting to $52 million today. With efforts to gain more financing failing, the government would establish a commission to begin the work. Roughly 500 workers, mostly Irish immigrants who would settle in the area near the canal over the years, began to get ready to work. On July 17, 1821, work began on the canal, with Thomas Burnett serving as the chief engineer and Richardson as the construction engineer. The original canal would run 14 kilometers and have seven locks, with each lock being 30 meters long, 6 meters wide, and 1.5 meters deep. After four years of work, the canal opened, and the future of Montreal was changed forever. It would quickly become a major port in North America, often the first stop for new settlers, and before long, Montreal had grown to become one of the most important cities on the continent. The original canal allowed for small flat-bottomed boats to journey through the canal, but this would prove to be inadequate as time went on. By the time the canal was completed, it had cost $438,404, or $41.2 million today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The St. Lawrence Canal System was a project that had begun by the British military following the War of 1812 in order to transport troops and supplies to the Great Lakes to protect the Canadian border following the war. An interesting fact about the Lachine Canal is that it was the first work not to be built by military troops, with the merchants of Montreal building the canal instead. At the time, the tolls of the canal were $1.50 to $500 depending on the size of the boats going through and their tonnage. Goods going through the canal were subject to tariffs as well, charging $0.02 cents for a barrel of flour, $0.03 cents for a hog or calf, and $0.12 cents each for cattle. Passengers paid the same amount as cattle, $0.12. Cents. While the canal did help, many merchants and leaders in Montreal were unhappy with the fact that it did not meet the wants of the local trade. On November 3, 1831, a notice was published in the Quebec Gazette saying, Public notice is hereby given that the undersigned and others will apply to the legislature of this province as its ensuing session for the privilege to form a joint stock company for the purpose of making a canal, locks, and basins in such places as they may find necessary for useful navigation from the Lake of Two Mountains to the waters of Lachine, 
and from the foot of the current St. Mary with a branch to the port of Montreal, should they see fit. In 1832, roughly 1,500 boats would make their way through the canal, and in 1835, the canal would be free of tolls. Despite the leaders of the community banding together, it would not be until 1843 that it was decided that the canal had to be deepened to allow for these heavier ships. In addition, hydraulic power was introduced at the canal. This was a huge change for the area around the canal, as more and more businesses came to the area to take advantage of this hydropower that was being provided there. Workers then settled near the factories they worked at, and the population around the canal exploded in size. Five new locks were built, each measuring 61 meters long, 13.5 meters wide, and 2.7 meters deep, replacing the original seven locks. The work on this first expansion began in 1843, as I stated, and one worker during that year was a stonemason by the name of Alexander Mackenzie. Three decades later, he would become the first Liberal Prime Minister of Canada. Social tensions would cause delays with the expansion, and in June of that year, the bloodiest labour conflict in Canadian history to that point would erupt. Over the course of 20 days, canal workers would clash with owners, leaving several dead and many injured. Nonetheless, work would soon begin. Work would finish on the canal expansion in 1848, although some sources say 1849, and the enlargement cost $2.1 million, or $268 million today. The government had been dealing with a severe depression, and funds were tight, and as a result, a private company had been given the project to finance and build. The change in the canal would have a major impact on the surrounding area. The canal was no longer just a means to bypass the rapids. It now allowed the Lachine Canal area to become a major industrial region for the city. With the deepening of the canal, the Upper St. Lawrence was also opened up to more navigation, and the trade industry in Montreal increased heavily. With the canal growing in use, many communities popped up around it, including Griffintown as working-class immigrants flooded into the city for work. Thanks to this change in the canal, the population of the city grew from 18,767 people in 1821, the year the first canal work was started, to 40,356 in 1841, and by the end of the century, the population was 325,000. In 1847, Work also began on the Montreal and Lachine Railroad, which was built to deal with the increased industrial development in the area. In 1863, a second enlargement of the canal began, with work continuing until about 1884, when the locks were lengthened to 82 metres and deepened to 43 metres. The enlargement would cost $6.5 million, or $755 million today. Between 1840 and 1950, the canal would see 600 industrial firms established around it, which employed 25% of the people in the city. From 1880 to 1940, the canal was at its height in use. In 1929 alone, 15,000 ships used the canal on an annual basis. The canal also provided electricity to early Montreal. In 1903, the Lachine Rapids Hydraulic and Land Company provided 12,000 electric horsepower for use in Montreal. The canal was a major part of Montreal's industry and trade network for nearly 150 years, and was operated heavily until 1950, when the expanding industrial industries in the area 
meant that the canal could no longer handle the increase in vessel size. By the second half of the 20th century, things began to change for the canal. The St. Lawrence Seaway was opened in 1959, and the canal would close to shipping in 1970. I'm going to go to a clip of that seaway opening, which spelled the death of the canal as a shipping route. So with a slow and stately air, this magnificent yacht moves up the canal. And though it's traveled many thousands of miles, transporting members of the royal family all over the globe, to the people of this area, the most memorable entry in Britannia's logbook will be this brief voyage of a few hundred yards through that ceremonial gate. The voyage of Her Majesty's Yacht Britannia is symbolic of the easy access to the open seas of the lake carriers which can now mingle with ocean-going freighters in a two-way exchange. And when Britannia breaches that gate, when the rockets fire, the balloons go up, and we hear the ringing of the church bells in, here in St. Lambert and in Montreal, it will mark the realization of a wonderful dream. This, then, is a moment to look ahead, to look ahead with the people of this great seaway, for this is their day. This day belongs to them and to their river, the St. Lawrence. And here now, on this June day, across the river from Montreal, where the wide canal leads to St. Lambert Lock, the people of the seaway and the cities and towns along its banks wait for a brief moment in time to come and go. A moment made memorable by the presence of a queen and her consorts and the president of a great republic. A moment made possible, as we have seen, by the vision of a few men and the efforts of many. The seaway had locks that were 223 meters long and 24 meters wide and 9.1 meters deep, and it could handle larger vessels from the Atlantic that the Lachine Canal could not. The lower section of the canal would be filled in between 1965 in 1967. In 2002, the canal itself would reopen for boaters, and the canal would become the Lachine Canal National Historic Site of Canada in 1996, complete with a visitor centre. In 1977, a bike path was created to run along the canal, and in 2009, it was chosen by Time magazine as one of the top 10 urban bike paths in the entire world. Information comes from Wikipedia, Parks Canada, the Encyclopedia of French Cultural Heritage in North America, St. Lawrence Picks Seaway History, Canadian Encyclopedia, Montreal, 1535-1914, Volume 2, Our Old Montreal, Montreal and Vicinity, Being a History of Old Town, and Old Montreal. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Canadian History X, and if you did, please give a rating and review. Again, you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can email me any questions you have at craig at canadax.com and you can find hundreds of articles on Canada's history on my website at canadax.com. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.